guess we, we in the past we've done a pretty uh, I think good job of avoiding like uh, being topical about anything uh, you know because because we are you know we are not driven by uh, sort of the trivialities the the trivial uh, you know ups and downs of uh, the political horse race of the day but I think that you know it has become time that uh, we talk about probably kind of the most momentous, I think, in, in many ways, uh, thing that's happened in, in sort of like in American politics, I probably in the last couple of decades. Um, and that, of course, is the now official uh, reversal of Roe v. Wade, which is no longer the law of the land. And the restrictions that have been uh, written into these various trigger laws uh, that many states have on their books uh, are now going into effect. Uh, and so we are kind of, yeah, we're living in the post-Roe world. Uh, sucks shit. And um, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about kind of like maybe a little bit of the broad history of of these efforts, but also the, the failure to really protect these rights, right? I mean, the you know, the, whatever you want, however you feel about like whatever the legal substance of the decision itself and i'm talking about roe not the uh not dobbs you know it's it, it's unquestionably sort of like a, a pivotal like a pivotal signpost or i'm mixing really mixing my metaphors here but it's definitely like a a major signpost in, in the history of american politics and so i think it's fair to say that you know it, it marks the beginning of an era and now dobbs marks the end of that era and so in the court and as that era went on like Dobbs is not one of these things that happen in like in like one go, right? It, we didn't all wake up in in the middle, you know. Uh, we didn't all wake up in in June of uh, was it June? Fuck, it's July now. It's, it was June when this happened, uh, you know, in June of uh, twenty twenty two, and find ourselves find that this happened like instantaneously. Of course, it was a product of a long uh, history of you know rolling back those abortion rights, and so I thought it was was worth to kind of talk about how like how that happened and sort of how also how it was allowed to happen i guess so that's my like kind of thesis program statement for uh for for today you know jerry said this is the most momentous uh political n news in the last 50 years i i mean i i might say that the you know havana syndrome is up there too yeah well but... so we'll talk about that one next I... <laughs> <laughs> you know the, the the interface between medicine and politics is always a contentious issue so i just wanted to bring that up you know you you were talking about sort of the uh legal basis for either the roe decision or the or i guess the dobbs decision too and it's i i guess i want to get out of the way as the you know member of this podcast learn it in the law that at the highest level like there is like constitutional law is uh you know it's hocus pocus i think it's kind of it's pretty well established at this point that, you know, it, these legal doctrines, obviously, they're couched in some kind of, you know, objective system of, you know, whether you want to say uh, uh, originalism or textualism or uh, I forget what uh, some of the, you know, sort of liberal versions of those things are. But like, for the most part, these things are, uh, you're trying to read something into a document that it is... I mean, it just sounds so trite to say, but you know, of course, is hundreds of years old and is is very broadly stated, and that doesn't have you know, oftentimes a very uh, anything really to say about 
you know, whether something specifically falls under a particular uh, category or doesn't. And, you know, in our beautiful, beloved system, uh, the nine people who sit on the Supreme Court are, they are the law when it comes to these things. And there's nothing that says that they have to, you know, uh, apply a certain doctrine or a certain set of principles to something. And oftentimes when they, you know, it goes without saying, I think that even the people who have these supposedly rigid systems of interpretation often deviate from them in circumstances in which they feel that they don't apply or just ideologically they don't apply. There's a whole complex series of sort of, you know, horse trading and that, of course, they always disclaim that this stuff, of course, this never happens. But I would say that the Supreme Court is, has traditionally been uh, a place where, um, you know, sort of institutional prestige is weighed against the sort of expedient needs of the ruling majority at any given time. In other words, traditionally speaking, and this is kind of the classic political science model of the Supreme Court, that there's, uh, you know, each individual justice and then the justices acting in a, you know, ideological majority formation that usually exists on the court at any given time have a set of prerogatives, but they also have to weigh that against the fact that the court is sort of, you know, it doesn't have, there's no Supreme Court army. And so they, they do have to have things fall within a certain band that will be accepted by the rest of the branches of government um, who, you know, it, it, so, and, and of course, I guess, um, in the long term to make sure that they're not making decisions that are so upsetting to people that the, you know, that it brings some reform to, again, the, the beloved and eternal system that we enjoy. With all that groundwork laid, I don't really want to focus on any of the legal stuff the, the political science stuff and sort of this, the strategies of the court and all that kind of stuff, I think that like this case is an indication that some of that way of thinking may not apply nearly as much now as it did in the past. Just, and I guess maybe I would, I'd be interested to hear your, your thoughts about this too, whether, you know, um, sort of the institutionalist approach that I think people usually locate some of this in, in what John Roberts is project on the court is is to you know to have this sort of institutional continuity and prestige maintained and you know public legitimacy of of the court as an institution preserved and all that kind of stuff it seems to me that that is a position that is uh does obviously it seems to not hold very much sway given the current composition of the our beloved law e4 institution so um uh what (laughs) what what do you think about that i i think that broadly you could characterize like, like I think it's broadly correct characterization of like Roberts's sort of overall kind of strategy. Like he wants to get to the same place, obviously, as all the other like right wingers. He just kind of wants to do it in in a way that looks respectable. But I think that part of the thing is that like that strategy maybe has lost a lot of its impetus. It seems because not just because the court itself is becoming more radical, but because the, Again, like the opposition to it is sort of just completely, uh, well, it's not non-existent, but it's so ineffective that they're now realizing that like, oh, they can just get whatever they want. Like they can write anything, you you know, and and the Supreme Court is like where, you know, a lot of like amateur history gets written Uh, and, and you could on the basis of the amateur history, you can do whatever you want, right? Like amateur history and professional law, right? So, but like. You can do whatever you want there. And and it turns out that like all of those things that are supposed to kind of be in counter opposition to this, they don't uh, function anymore. Right. Like 
people had to be like yell at Joe Biden for like a month and a half to actually get out there and like start. I, I, I haven't I've, like so today is July 8th um, uh, of this recording. And apparently there was like a big executive order announcement. I don't know what's in it. I haven't looked at it today. I was busy and I just didn't have time. But like the the leak of the draft like dropped at the end of May. So what have you been doing from the end of May until like the, the almost the middle of July? It just it, it just everything moves at such a snail's pace and so ineffective that like, you know, that I don't think they, they fear any of that backlash anymore. I mean, maybe they're wrong, right? Like, it could, you know, who knows what can happen and things can change. But I think right now they're really feeling their oats because uh, because of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I don't think anything meaningfully constrains them. And I, I think it's correct to say that Roberts has lost a lot of power due to that, because I think, you know, what he was very good at was creating the sort of framework or, or like cage of reasoning within which the liberals thought that they could maneuver. And I just remember having a lot of conversations when I was in DC about how, you know, like, oh, well, we can get Roberts if we can just do things his way and sort of structure arguments that will appeal to him. You know, he's the swing vote. And it's like, oh, well, that era, if that era ever existed, is definitely over. I mean, I think it was extremely naive to think that that was ever a viable um, means of getting what you want at the Supreme Court. But, you know, everyone who sort of premised their strategic thinking about that, you know, like that that's totally off the table because Roberts is not the swing vote. Um, and in fact, as you're saying, the Supreme Court will just do whatever it wants. You know, what I hear whenever they say things like, I forget exactly, now I'm blanking on the phrase that, that Alito's come up with for um, rights that are like historically yeah, rooted. Yeah, or yeah that's like right. That. It's like, right. Rooted, deeply, deeply rooted, rooted in history. Rooted. That's right. Deeply rooted. Rooted. Yeah, yeah. So all of that, I so I, I feel like we have like, three different candidates that have been proposed at various times by the conservative majority of the Supreme Court for some sort of higher law or higher principle by which they uh, overturn law, like actual laws. Um, you know, we have this originalism, which is like, okay, you know, is, is what you're saying is the law consistent with what James Madison would have thought the constitution permits the federal government to do? There's this historically rooted thing or deeply rooted rights, which is like, okay, you know, anything that arose as the demands of a social movement for individual rights on the basis of some sort of identity that didn't really exist in the 18th century, you know, that doesn't count within the Constitution's protection for equal rights. And then, you know, where I come from in most of my work in, you know, as like the the thing that stands in for the constitution or deeply historically rooted rights or whatever um, is economics. So on antitrust and on regulation and on other matters that are like more obviously um, concerned with economic policy, what the court appeals to in place of the constitution, which has nothing to say about antitrust or anything like that, is this idea that economics says that some law or some interpretation of the law is wrong. And therefore, you know, we overturn that interpretation of the law or that law um, altogether. So what they're looking for is a pretext. You know, I mean, I guess coming from the last of those three things, it's just obvious that what the Supreme Court needs is a pretext by which to say, you know, this thing we don't like violates this higher principle that we adhere to. Therefore, we say you're not allowed to do it, as opposed to just saying, well, we don't like it, so you're not allowed to do it. I was going to say, uh, from a like in the body of constitutional law, the, the phrase deeply rooted in 
deeply rooted rights or deeply rooted in the historical tradition that does actually come from like a past line of cases that involve like whether certain federal rights apply to the states. Um, so I don't know exactly when or how it got imported into basically deciding if a right exists at all at like a, at the federal level. But um, I mean, again, this is all just like sort of, you know, making uh, shit up. <laughs> it's all just like, yeah. I like, mean, what, like I, what was so reading the to me, I mean, I guess I, I, only, I only learned about this idea of deeply rooted, I guess, when the, the draft opinion was leaked. I, maybe it was slightly before that from some other case this term, but sometime around, you know, in the last few months. So recently in my intellectual history, insofar as that's yeah. a thing. Um, and it just struck me how consonant it is with the Obama, the long arc of history bends towards justice or whatever, because it's like, if you think that all of history is a progression leading upwards towards the realization of universally applicable rights, then every right is not deep, historically deeply rooted because it all just came into existence because the long arc of history bent towards it in the last generation or whatever you want to say. So it's mm -hmm. like you have Obama and Alito in this kind of dialectic which is like they kind of both need each other and they both serve each other. Right. Well, I mean, it, 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 I think, you know, it depends on how far you want to zoom out here. But I mean, part of this is, you know, sort of an individual rights-based framework is vulnerable to certain, you know, uh, attacks, I think. And, um, you know, we don't really have uh, any sort of tradition of social rights in this country, which is um, to, the, to the impoverishment of <laughs> the body of, not only the body of law, but just sort of like the way that people live in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of things that you can't legislate on or guarantee on an individual level, but nonetheless should be like expected, you know, people should expect in uh, as sort of part of the good life living in a particular society or whatever. I mean, you can't guarantee that someone's going to be able to get married and have a family because obviously you can't gang press the reciprocal party into doing that. But like you can have a society in which it's, you know, expected that people should be able to have the sort of family formations that they want to have and that those things will be, uh, you know, provided for and guaranteed for in a way that uh, makes that pot, you know, that facilitates that. Uh, there's no tradition of anything like that. You know, obviously this is a very individualistic country, but, you know, our legal framework is very individualistic as well. It, it comes out of, you know, another very individualistic society of, you know, sort of the, the British common law or whatever. And that, you know, that's just, that's not a historical lineage that includes collective expectations of people living in a society like i said i think i think it just makes it very difficult to figure out how a good society would would emerge from the sort of legal framework that we have because uh there's like i said there's a lot of things i mean you know just even in sort of the so you know supposed abortion debate or whatever the the shortcoming of sort of a a more liberal version of the of the right to choose is basically like well oftentimes people don't have a choice due to economic circumstances and you know liberals don't really have any answer to that they don't envision a society in which you know everyone who wants to have a child and wants to carry you know the, their pregnancy to to term and everything has the guarantee that they're going to be able to live uh, a good life in our society that's just not something that is like part of the you know sort of democratic project i guess i i don't know if that's too too broad a line of uh <laughs> of inquiry to pursue here just because you know we're, we're we're talking about obviously uh you know the facts on the ground not necessarily um you know how one would structure like the rights and expectations of a citizen living in, in american society or whatever but um but i do think it's worth pointing out that it, the, the 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 initial framing of this whole 
issue as basically like, does one person in a, a vacuum have the right to choose to terminate their pregnancy it has, has like shortcomings in and of itself. Well, I think, I mean, what you're saying is definitely apt as applied to like a liberal, uh, an attempt to uh, instantiate a liberal politics through a judicial, a strategy of judicial activism. It's like that will never achieve the ends of guaranteeing broad-based rights other than in the framework that you talk about. So so when we say like, how do we get to this point where Roe is being overturned? Well, in some ways it's implied by Roe being decided in the first place because it frames reproductive rights as an individual right, not the right to, not, the, not that society owes everybody the ability to live in the family formation that they want, but rather that society or that the constitution protects the autonomy of the individual from any social expectation. And liberal politics has been so focused on this idea that you can secure liberal outcomes from a judicial political strategy or from a legalistic political strategy more broadly, because I think it fundamentally sees itself as minoritarian. So, you know, my, my broad assessment of kind of how we got to this point is that the view on the part of sort of people who are like professional liberal political actors is you know, our views are morally correct, but politically unpopular. So the way to get what we want is to avail ourselves of the the political mechanisms that are fundamentally elitist that protect us from the popular will. Um, and abortion rights is one of those things. So that's like, an, it's an unpopular cause to say people should have reproductive autonomy or women should have reproductive autonomy. Um, so the way that we need to protect that political end is by getting a Supreme Court ruling that says that women have reproductive autonomy and then protecting that Supreme Court ruling from popular will at all. Um, and, you know, I think if that's how you think, if you think that your views are fundamentally unpopular and you need to use minoritarian institutions to get them, you know, then the strategy of the last 50 years of elite reproductive politic, uh, politics and political activism kind of makes sense. It's like, okay, well, why how, Why would they make all the decisions that they've made all this time? Well, they don't think that like appealing to the public is gonna get them what they want. That's the thing that has to be avoided at all costs. So that's why they keep pushing it to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I don't, I mean, I think they've made a lot of poor decisions about how to go about judicial politics at that even that elite level, but like, why would they care so much about um, uh, Supreme Court rulings and put so much stock in that. I mean, I just remember like election cycle after election cycle after election cycle as, you know, a perceived left member of the Democratic political coalition being told, yes, you may not like the Democratic candidate, but you have to vote Democratic because of the Supreme Court. It's like, okay, well, you didn't even protect the Supreme Court in the end, <laughs> you know, but like, if that's, if that's how you think politics works, it's like, you know, the the enlightened views of the elite have to be protected from the masses than that political. I mean, I have a, I have a theory about this. Um, and the theory that I have is that, you know, I, I think that in the beginning, like any, you know, like any fight for rights, right? Uh, reproductive rights was not did not was not super popular, right? If it was if it had been popular, there would have been no fight, right? Or that's not strictly true, obviously. But like, if it had been genuinely popular, like you could have just won that uh, that uh, uh, question, let's say in the uh, in you know in elections, right? And in some places they did, right? In California and New York, um, 
let you know there were setbacks and stuff like that but there were you know there were genuine like electoral victories um uh on behalf of abortion rights in, in a number of states uh but broadly it was like obviously an uphill battle just like civil rights was an uphill battle and it made sense at the time to say okay well we're going to take kind of a multi-pronged approach we're going to we're going to have the kind of the political component or let's say the electoral component uh, and then we're also going to have, uh, let's say, a judicial component, right? And part of the reason why that, I think, made sense, let's say, if you are, you know, trying to decide whether or not you're going to, let's say, appeal whatever the Connecticut statute that ultimately led to Griswold, um, if you're going to take that, you know, up to the courts, uh, is that, you know, in 1963 or whatever, you're just living in a different world, right? You're living in the world of like the post-war liberal consensus. And uh, there is this notion that, okay, like we, we have this these technocratic um, individuals who sit at the top of our judicial system and they will surely be able to uh, examine the law and come to a reasoned conclusion about like what it represents, right? And so if that's the framework that you are operating under, then of course it makes sense in you know, in the 60s and 70s to uh, move that, to take that fight to the courts. Uh, now, not to the exclusion of like other efforts as well, but it certainly makes sense as part of like a broad political strategy, right? You, you try different things and, you know, some of them work out and some of them work out better than others. And whatever the faults of it, like as a kind of as a philosophical, you know, as a philosophical approach, I think like, you know, Roe is a genuine success. Like, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't know, like, you know, there's a lot of debate about whatever, whether it's well-reasoned or not. But, like, just from a purely, I think, like, instrumental standpoint, this is a genuine success, right? Like, people's lives improved because they were able to, like, control their fertility. Now, the problem, though, is that the the people who, like, litigated those cases and the people who were whose ideologies were formed in that era are like still around and they still think we live in that era or maybe they are fooling themselves into thinking they live in that era and so they what they're failing to recognize is that like the the post-war the war in court was like lightning in a bottle and you were never going to get that again because it came out of a political and social formation that no longer exists right like all that stuff no longer obtains and there is no way to resurrect it there is no like you cannot there's there's no return right to to that well i i mean jerry i have to disagree with you okay. historical analysis to an extent i think you're correct I, I i think you're correct in saying your ultimate conclusion which is that roe was a success in the sense of like reproductive rights was not a something that could have been secured through popular political mechanisms in 1972 so it was secured through judicial activism let's say that where you say like the warren car was lightning in a bottle it, i don't agree with that it wasn't like something that just sort of happened as a freak of nature it was the product of a mid-century political econ and economic consensus that made it so that you had you know a lot of democratic administrations and republican administrations that felt that their judicial nominees had to be in accord with the mid-century political consensus so earl warren republican governor of california 
put on the court, you know, Republican and Democrat. He was a Democrat. He was Democrat nominated by the. De- oh, that's funny. Yeah, no, it was he. No, no, he literally. I believe he literally won the nomination of both parties at one point for one of his Democratic terms. I I, I gotta look this up to make sure I'm not lying to our listeners. <laughs> oh, that's that's a great that's a great anecdote. I did not I did not realize that. But the, the point is, I I I just it's like the the way with your phrase lightning in a bottle makes me think that 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 model is like oh my god look at this great success like uh, a random thing that happened on the supreme court now is the time to get abortion rights enshrined let's bring roe let's bring griswold let's bring roe let's get it done during this brief moment oh my god look at that success i yeah that 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 that, that's not i i I see what you You mean i I, yeah let me i think you know where where there's probably more agreement between us right you know you probably agree with my my critique of what you're saying is like you had a a dominant majoritarian political coalition in the form of the roosevelt new deal era democratic party that you know obviously it's not that we had a one-party state in this country but the republican party of that era agreed with at least a large chunk of the new deal settlement or at least they 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 uh, consented to it, even if they didn't agree with it. And that created majorities on the court for a couple of decades that led to the point where a, a, a decision decisions like Griswold and Roe, which were themselves minoritarian at the time, could have been instantiated. I think, you know, what we've completely lacked, is, or what we've completely lost, I should say, is the um, economic ideology that sustained those those majoritarian political coalitions. So, like, in the absence of that, that's completely hollowed out. The politics that's left is the politics of individual rights and identity that that Roe created, and in some sense is living solely under its shadow. And that is not a majoritarian political coalition. That's a political movement that says, "Oh my God, we have to, uh, you know, uh, cling by our fingernails to the Supreme Court and its enlightenment in the face of popular backlash because we all went too far." people hate us now and so our job as like democratic political people is to you know build a wall around the gains that we've had and guard them at all costs because you know the people and the political system are fundamentally hostile to us and that that mindset is the one that persists that that i it's not so it's not that you know the the um people who are on the court in 1972 are still around that at least is is not true but the people whose politics were formed in the backlash to, to the politics of Roe. Those people are still around. The, 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 the people who are like, the, the political creed we represent is minoritarian. We have to protect it in the face of backlash. The majority, like we, we can, at no time can we appeal to a democratic political majority, no small d democratic, you know, that's off the table. Those people are still around. And I think that's where the fuck up has been most extreme. So it's like, you could get a lot of people out on the street protecting reproductive rights. You know, you can get a lot of people out on the street protecting the right of black people not to be murdered by the cops. That's what happened in 2020. You know, circa 1985, you wouldn't think that that's something that could happen. And yet that's something that did happen in 2020. But that fact of like a majoritarian, progressive, individual rights focused political coalition hasn't penetrated the political elite whose job it still is to protect Roe from being overturned and they failed in that job. Roe was overturned because they could not at any, they're, they're just like, their DNA is programmed not to appeal to a popular constituency. 
I totally agree with you, by the way. Like uh, when I said, I think the, the, when I was, when I said lightning in a bottle, what I meant was not like something that just happened out of the blue. I was trying to uh, evoke the notion of a um, kind of a singular contingency, let's say, Con- like a, like a, not, not like a, you know, thing that happens like at an instantaneous point in time, but a particular contingent arrangement that sort of becomes, you know, as it were, frozen in time, frozen in a conceptual sense, right? Like it's, there's a, there's like a, there's like an arrangement that holds, like, as you're saying, right? You know, this, again, this balance of the, the post-war liberal order, right? It's in effect, and it molds like the perception of the people who grow up within it. And to whatever extent, they're like unable to see that that we have departed from it, right? And when I say lightning in a bottle, what I mean is that there was like, the, there really was this genuine like run of liberal successes in front of the court, uh, b- both, you know, both for the war, with the Warren court and, you know, even uh, under, you know, somebody like Berger uh, who succeeded him, it was still, you know, it was more conservative court, but it was nonetheless like there were, you know, important victories. The problem, you know, part of the problem is like what what Marshall was saying, but the the flip side to that is that people who have internalized that method methodology of success, I don't know what to say, how to how to say it, except like living in the past, right? I mean, you you you've done something that has worked, and and whatever again, whatever its philosophical foundations, like it had genuine successes. Uh, but those successes like can't be repeated because the circumstances that gave rise to them no longer pertain. Uh, but the people who like are grew up and have and for whom those successes were a kind of formative experience, like still associate the institution yeah. with the successes that they were able to achieve through it without recognizing that like, yeah. those things just yeah, like I, I, this is a, it's a different world. We don't live in that world anymore. And, and just to. And and finally, like uh, to to make sure that we are not lying to our listeners, um, Warren did in for the nineteen forty two gubernatorial election. I looked this up. He apparently cross filed to run in both primaries. He did win the Republican <laughs> primary, and he almost won the Democratic primary. Good. Well, I was going to say, I'm glad I'm glad you brought up Berger because I wanted to reassure our listeners because I'm sure that we'll get a bunch of pedants saying that we don't understand, we don't know basic facts of history. The Roe decision was decided under Berger, so Warren was off. It was yes. not Chief Justice after 1969. Berger was a more conservative justice, as you know. Jerry said the Berger Court was nonetheless, uh, in some sense, a continuation of the Warren Court in terms of the personnel who were on it, and most importantly, um, this idea. Like Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued the idea that the Fourteenth Amendment protects. Uh, women's rights, that is, includes a bar on discrimination on the basis of gender as well as race, through the 1970s, that is, the Burger Court. So that mindset, that idea that, like, a creative, brilliant legal mind like Ruth Bader Ginsburg can craft a legal strategy that goes to the Supreme Court and gets a novel constitutional right recognized, uh, you know, that, that that might be a success, you know, so long as, like, the lawyer who's arguing it looks like 
an extremely uh, like personally conservative person who's like not wearing uh, hippie clothing or whatever when she's making her oral, oral arguments. Like that mindset is the one that like made sense in the historical contingency of the 1970s under the Burger Court, and that's the one that lasted too long. That that like people think is still possible, and that's the politics we should be protecting in the 2020s when you know that is many decades and many political generations out of date or should have been except that the same people are still in power warren berger and harry blackman the author of the Roe decision both noted minnesotans i want to throw that out there actually the Roe decision itself was informed by the fact that harry blackman was the general counsel for the mayo clinic for several years before you know early in his or sometime in his private legal career but um i wanted to say that you know part of the conjuncture that Jerry's talking about, like the arrangement of forces that prevailed in, you know, through basically the early 80s, uh, and even, you know, a little bit, there were survivals of it even later than that, is that like the ideological sorting between the parties on the issue of abortion did not, was still, you know, there were still pro, pro-life or whatever, and pro-choice people on, I think that's more of 90s terminology, but I mean, there were still pro and anti-abortion people in both political coalitions as late as the 1990s. And I mean, there's still, you know, there's still conservative Democrats like Tim Kaine and Henry Cuellar in Texas, the Nancy Pelosi's beloved candidate. Um, the, uh, like the Casey of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was a 1990, like 1990, I think, decision that that could have been Dobbs, basically, that could have overruled Roe versus Wade in 1990. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was the swing vote on, on that case. But the Casey in that, in question, was a governor of Pennsylvania who was a anti-abortion Democrat. So, and he was not actually allowed to speak, I believe at the, I, I can't remember if it was 92 or 96, but the, the, you know, sort of part of the, the sorting here was that by the, by the time of one of Clinton's conventions, he wasn't allowed to speak at the convention because he was, uh, uh, I think, I think Andrew, you're, you're, I, I, very, uh, uh, rarely for you, your facts are not quite right. I think this is like a big political football in the democratic, uh, coalition about why he wasn't allowed to speak it wasn't that he was pro-life but rather that in his speech he wouldn't agree to like full-throatedly endorse the clinton gore ticket okay okay they would have allowed him had he agreed in advance to say at his speech like even though i'm pro-life i support the people who were nominating he wouldn't say that so it wasn't anyway whatever i'm not anyways i'm not here to carry water for the fucking democratic party garrett uh, and I guess I wasn't. I wasn't say. saying that that was. I, I don't know the. You know, I'm just saying that 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 was. That's a watershed moment in sort of the Democrats as the yeah, pro-choice I mean, I think, party. I think not we have even to record. So, so you know, the, the, so. the know your enemy guys did this great three part episode. I mean, great, like great in, in their vein of uh, podcasting. Um, you know, where it's you know they started with this idea that like there was actually more anti-abortion. Democrats than there were anti-abortion Republicans when this all started, and the reason why was because a lot of Catholics voted Democrat because they were working working class, and the part and the Democratic Party was the party of the working class, and abortion was a cat was a you know very sectarian issue. Catholics opposed it, everybody else felt uh, ambivalent about it. So like that was the politics ex ante, and it's ex post that we have this uh, you know uh, complete sorting into uh, Democrat and Republican on the basis of pro versus anti-abortion. 
Well, and 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 to like not you know not to put too fine a point on it, but like I think in I, this was like also around the time of Roe v. Wade. I can't. I'm not sure if it's '73 exactly or if it's a different year. But there was a referendum that was uh, so New York, you know, liberalized its abortion rights, uh, you know, quite uh, quite strongly. I believe just in the run up to Roe, and then there was like a referendum that um, basically tried to roll some of that back, and it was because of like whatever the baroqueness of the uh uh the new york constitutional process i guess uh it was the I, I apparently like uh the governor had a veto on it or something and the governor who like essentially vetoed it who protected abortion rights in new york was nelson rockefeller right so who you know like whatever <laughs> you know was a you know quote-unquote liberal republican but like a republican right well, probably a man who paid for a few abortions in his lifetime let's just say that well you know you know i Whatever, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, he probably, I mean, probably. I allegedly, don't. allegedly, um, allegedly, allegedly, I don't know. The dead can't <laughs> sue, right? You can't, can you defame the dead? Andrew, I, is that possible? I, uh, not familiar with the uh, defamation law, unfortunately. Uh, it's pretty hard to defame a public oh, figure. Andrew, though, you're the general speaking. counsel of this podcast. How can you, <laughs> I, I, I can't believe you're just hanging us out to dry. It's your job to protect us. You know, you, you have to get into actual malice standard when you defame a public official. I don't know whether, honestly, I, I think it I think it may be the case that you can't defame a dead person, but I don't know. Um, anyways, I was going to say that, you know, one thing I'll add to the, the, the sort of back and forth on the, the sort of the ideological nature of the Democratic Party is I, I think that at some point, and this, I don't think this was the case all along, but, uh, you know, at some point, uh, I would say in probably the last 30 years, the, de the Democrats have become like a purely institutionalist party. Uh, and and that, that I think represents in, in, to some degree sort of the, the itself, the institutionalization of sort of the kinds of strategies that prevailed in this determining period that you're talking about. Like, you, you, you know, it's almost an institution that like, oh, the left guy can't win because of McGovern, you know, like that's, that's a classic sort of calcified thought it, of yeah, they, they've, all these people have been permanently scarred by the McGovern campaign. Well, and, you, you know, um, I, I think, you know, uh, progress is made through individual rights uh, stamp with the imprimatur of the Supreme Court is another one of those things. And, you know, it's it's to some degree, I think, quite psychotic at this point, the, the faith. I mean, because Democrats have become a political party that almost to which, like, the process is the desired outcome. Uh, in a lot of cases, and uh, in almost all cases, really, I mean, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, it, which I think there's some feedback loop there with this, this point that we've repeatedly made that, like, the Democrats are not a party that that really has, like, a, a cohesive will, or, like, a desire to do anything in particular as a collective. You know, th I think that this, this is an interesting, in a dark sort of way, phenomenon given the fact that like it seems that having uh any kind of i hesitate to use the word but like any kind of social progress or whatever to, to be a sort you know a, a supposedly progressive party and I, I think progressive is a meaningless word but i mean it, it as if that's like sort of the vision that the party has of itself you know it's really sort of painted itself into a, a, a huge corner because any sort of work through the institutions requires at this point a drastic change in those institutions, uh, especially the sort of the counter-majoritarian institutions like the Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Electoral College specifically. Marshall, when you were talking about how the, the, the Democrats see themselves as like this minoritarian 
position that needs to avail itself of these counter-majoritarian institutions. Just thinking like how psychotic that seems given that like the political uh, landscape has been um, completely defined in the last 25 years or so by these counter-majoritarian institutions putting in power people who, uh, you know, presidents who, you know, in, in several cases were not elected by the popular will. And then went on to appoint Supreme Court justices, who, of course, they have no democratic accountability whatsoever. And then, you know, uh, even when sort of the uh, the organs of democratic power are in the control of the Democratic Party, the counter-majoritarian procedures in the Senate are com a complete stymie to any sort of thing that they wish to do, um, or purportedly wish to do, I should say, because I think in a lot of these cases, it's kind of dubious whether there's any, like I said, collective desire there, because, you know, I, one thing I really, really hate is when people are like, well, the Democrats want to do this, but, you know, the, the 49th and 50th senators don't want to do it, so they can't do it. It's like, well, okay, well, the Democrats are the 49th and 50th senators. That's the margin at which the Democrats are a collective thing. And if they can't get those people on board, then they don't want to do that. They don't want to do it because they can't do it because, you know, if they collectively did want to do it, then they would have the votes to do it, but they don't. And therefore, they don't want to do it. So well, it, it, I, that's just something yeah, that really I mean, annoys I, me. But. I mean, you know, that's like the, the, the theory of like Senate personhood the same way that <laughs> Santa Clara, we have this theory of corporate personhood. Right. I mean, that that particular point harks back to our past episode with the great Corey Halla, where it's like, okay, why don't the Democrats have 60 senators? Well, it's because they stopped being able to win elections in fucking North and South Dakota. Right. That's why, you know, that's why it matters what Joe Manchin is willing to do. Um, I keep it, well, thinking- back, so, Sorry, so, uh, can I just I, interject a quick point there? <laughs> I think one of the, the sort of uh, frustrating things about the uh, abortion issue and sort of the idea about protecting Roe versus Wade is that a lot of times, um, you know, the Democrats like to do this thing where they, they don't want to win elections, and then they don't win those elections. And then they say the reason that they can is because the people who would have voted for them are bad, and therefore they, they actually yeah, shouldn't have yeah. gotten those votes. One of the yeah. main reasons I think that those people are painted as bad is because they're like anti-choice or something. Yes, yes. I just wanted to finish my point here, which is that uh, I think in a lot of these cases, you, you know, we there was a, a, a period of politics that that prevailed for a long time in which, you know, your position on abortion was not determinative of, of your party affiliation. There is absolutely nothing about sort of the history of this country that suggests that abortion is sort of like a, a, a talismanic issue that can't, you know, people who are anti-choice can't be made to vote for a pro, you know, a pro-choice candidate uh, based on other issues. You know, I think oftentimes the, the abortion issue serves as a useful you know, explanatory factor for like the fact that, well, you, you know, the Democrats have really fucked a lot of, of a, a lot of places up and they've really caused a lot of problems in, in communities and states where people don't vote for them anymore as a result of that. Now they vote for the Republicans who have also fucked things up, but it's in a different way that doesn't maybe reflect those votes. But I think it's, it's important to understand that like, you know, a, abortion, you, you know, can't be this issue where it's like, I mean, the Democrats always have this thing where they're, they're like the Democrat, like a Democratic politician is like a product that yells at you if you don't buy it. You know, like that's their conception of voting is that you're sort of like a consumer and that you're voting in your, you know, c consumer marketplace or whatever. And then they get on they get on the TV or Twitter or whatever. And they say, I'm sorry, Democrats, you need to just buckle up and stop fucking around and just vote for me, regardless of what the pro you know, regardless of what uh, my positions are on anything. 
And so uh, I think in that way, you know, ab abortion shouldn't be allowed to, to stand as this sort of, oh, well, this is why all those cretins and, and uh, untouchables in these various flyover states refuse to vote for Democrats now. I think that if the Democrats had hewed to the politics that, you know, benefited those places that led to the those voting coalitions prevailing in those places for a lot of the 20th century, that we wouldn't see this be like the sort of salient division that it is in in terms of like voting affiliations in like North Dakota or, you know, uh, whatever. So, yeah, I mean, so, I, sorry, Marco, I, I, think a, I think there's a lot going on in that uh, brief narrative in terms of sort of how we got to this point. Um, as you say, you know, there's a, this go, I mean, I guess sort of like working back through history, there's this go to, you know, the reason they're not voting for us in North Dakota is because they're bad people, um, because we are the good people who are protecting these fundamental individual rights. So obviously that's alienating, you know, the real reason why they're not voting for us in North Dakota is because we fucked them over. Um, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done that, but actually we, we, the party preferred the abortion politics to the politics that actually won us a broad majority in the first place, because the abortion politics, you know, that's not a problem for the Wall Street funders and the, you know, Silicon Valley and whoever's going to give us our post politics employment. So it's like, okay, we can just make politics about these sort of individual conscience questions, then we can, you know, not have to be answerable to the people, to the uh, democratic coalition that brought us to the table in the first place that, um, you know, is responsible for the creation of the Warren court and the, the Burger court that, that succeeded this. I, I'll just say like, you know, uh, Andrew, you're our like resident um, uh, legal mind and someone who's experienced in the vagaries of constitutional law and, and um, you know, sufficiently to recognize how, how nonsense it is. Um, I'm the resident expert in the workings of the like democratic nonprofit industrial complex here. And the, an experience that like sticks out in my mind, like as being, you know, like from the perspective of, I believe the summer of 2004, you know, pointing its finger directly at June of 2022, um, was sitting around a conference table at the Center for American Progress where I was then an intern. This was literally the first year that organization was in existence. Um, and there was this sort of like meet and greet for the interns with the senior executives of the organization. And I remember Sarah Wartell, uh, Sarah Rosen Martel, who was then the like number two of the Center for American Progress, now the president of the Urban Institute, I think, um, was there and she was like, you know, I don't think women nowadays care enough about feminism. That's why they're not uh, protecting, that's why they don't care about uh, the important milestone that was Roe v. Wade. Um, you know, so I'm worried that, you know, the Republican um, legal movement is going to win on the subject of abortion because like you know the young women nowadays just don't care enough about it and i i remember thinking at the time naive as i was as an undergraduate then and like you know i can bet the women sitting around the table care a great deal about abortion you know you just haven't articulated a politics that's in any way appealing to them you know maybe i was wrong maybe the people who are who are sitting around the table are the people who are now staffing the biden administration and allowed this to happen on their watch that's quite possible um but it just seemed like you know, there was no, it, it, you know, the, the, the sense of like what she meant by caring about Roe v. Wade, caring about feminist politics from 1970s was like, you need to keep doing the exact same politics that got us Roe v. Wade in the first place in 1972 and you're not and so i'm worried roe v wade is going to go away not do it harder though yeah yeah but not recognizing <laughs> that like any other politics of protecting reproductive rights could ever have been possible 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do want to like take, I think, you know, uh, stick out a slightly different position from something that, uh, at the, you know, Andrew said that where, you know, I don't like, I guess I would say, I would put it like this. Like, I don't think that, you know, you should like any voting block should necessarily be like sort of, you know, a priori consigned to unreachability. But I also think you have to be kind of like realistic about like what you can get and what you can't get. So I think the connection here between the inability to like formulate a an appeal like a politics that would you know would genuinely protect reproductive freedom and on the opposite side the this sort of um, idea that you can like write off certain sections of whatever the, of the electorate as like irredeemable or whatever. I guess to what I would say what I would say to that is that there is I think. I, this and I, I think I've voiced this before, uh, in in our previous in previous discussions. Is I think there's a synergy, like a, as, as as terrible as that word is to use, be, between liberation movements and likewise between uh, sort of counter revolutionary or counter liberation movements, right? And I think you see this dynamic constantly going on, where certain liberatory like developments give rise to other liberatory developments because they provide the they provide examples that can be copied and strategies that can be adopted right and the same thing is true for like counter-revolutionary strategies and counter uh liberation liberatory developments right the right is constantly looking for examples of like how like international examples whether they're looking to something like hungary or Russia or whatever, right? They're always looking for examples of like, how can, what kinds of things we can we like pull into our orbit? And conversely, like what kind of things can we export to other countries, right? So there's just very like active, uh, there's a very active strain of like st strategic thinking about this on the right. And I think that part of the problem on the, on the left is that like, there isn't quite nearly as much of this kind of like thinking and so to me, um, you know, part of the problem is that I, I feel like a lot of people have, you know, said, oh, well, like abortion is just this like culture war issue. And it doesn't like it doesn't connect to, let's say, whatever, whether I don't know, like if you're a centrist, you might say you might call it like, uh, uh, you know, kitchen table issues or whatever. Or if you are a, you know, or, you know, some there there. I think a small minority of people on, you know, kind of the weird left, I guess, who might call it like, you know, oh, it's like, you know, people that you might sort of like mockingly call class reductionists who like, oh, it's not a class issue. Well, like, that's nonsense, I think, right? Abortion, like the right to your reproductive autonomy is like, that's a, that's as much of a, that that's as constitutive of like every, any material concern that anybody could possibly have as anything else, right? It's an economic issue. It's a, uh, it's an issue of like, uh, you know, criminal justice, obviously. It's an it's it's an issue where like all these things like meet. Right. It's a nexus point. Um, and so the inability to kind of like articulate that like as a as like a not not just like I, I don't know what to say. Like I you're not going to there's certainly going to be people that you're not going to capture. Right? People who are for religious reasons, like in opposition to, to abortion. You just have to say, OK, like you can't win those voters. Right. Like, if that's the case, that's the case. But I think broadly speaking, I mean, at least if you read the polling, like the consensus is there, right? Like the idea, the consent, there's a there's a majority of votes, in like a pretty good majority of votes in America for like pretty liberal abortion access. And so 
you can use that as a point on which to like stake, you can use it as a flag in which to stake like a stronger position, right? Because it is like one of these things where everything intersects. Uh, and you don't have to, and you don't have to choose, right? Like it's one of these situations where like, if you win on this issue, you win like across the board. And what continuously baffles me is this uh, like attempt to segment it in some way or set it aside as like this different thing that exists in like a separate universe, but it doesn't exist in a separate universe. It can exist. Everything exists in the same universe. And this is like actually a thing that you could really, um, you, you could really win on and you could win auxiliary battles basing yourself off of this position too. Well, I think the, the, the problem is that that presupposes that you can mobilize a popular politics to get what you want. And that is the thing that nobody in part in power in the Democratic Party is comfortable with or would ever consider as an option. Yeah, I guess my, like, I think my, I think you're laying oh. out a, a perfectly viable alternative strategy road not taken type situation. And it's just the current Democratic Party is as constituted cannot do that. I mean, I don't I, I don't disagree with any any of what you said. I don't I don't know if if I was seeming like I was staking out a slightly different position there, but I'm not saying, you know, I'm saying that, like, for whatever reason, Democrats have decided not to try to run like viable candidates or to put any resources into certain areas of the country. And I think this like one of their excuses for doing that is basically like, well, these people are beyond the pale for some reason, oftentimes involving being anti-choice or whatever. Um, and first of all, you know, in order to win those places, you don't need to win like a giant number of anti-choice people necessarily. And second of all, you, you know, um, I don't think that it, I, I, I guess I'm just saying that what they're doing is is not like like not that they should pursue a strategy of having all these Henry Cuellars out there, you know, running as anti-choice Democrats or whatever, but that like they just basically um, decided to embark on a campaign of uh, on a strategy of not campaigning in these places, not being viable in these places. And like, this is sort of their retroactive justification for that. Not that I, I don't actually think that, that what's going on is that they're taking a principled stand for um, abortion rights or anything like that. I mean, I think, um, well, I mean, we've seen, we've seen that like the, the, the amount of seriousness with, with which they've responded to uh, and, and the amount of like alacrity and speed which with which they've responded to like the ultimate bad thing in that arena happening you know roe versus wade being overturned has not it's not inspired a lot of confidence in their you know uh <laughs> like readiness for that contingency or in their like the seriousness with which they've you know that they hold this position that like this you know that abortion rights are a, a significant component of what makes a Democrat a Democrat? Well, okay, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure that uh, in in the mind that may be the case, but like on the ground, it it sure seems like that's um, if that were the case, that maybe they would have done a little bit more. But who knows? Yeah, and 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 to the to the institutional point, which I which you made earlier, I thought like the the there was something I wanted to say about that, which is that like you know, people, whatever, uh, you know, Twitter wags like myself or, uh, you know, others uh, who are sort of like more, um, you know, or more activist, uh, you know, will like yell at Joe Biden and be like, do something, right? And then you'll get like 
you know, these very, like, very clever people who are like, well, what do you want him to do, right? Like, well, and then they'll start, just start listing, like, all the, these lists of, like, limitations on, okay, the power of the presidency and, like, the inability to corral whatever the supposed two, you know, renegades in the Senate and, like, blah, 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 blah. And, like, okay, all of that is somewhat, like, it's accurate, right? But the point that you, that the takeaway from this is that, like, you, what you should be learning is that the institutions that you are you think are like serving or are somehow going to protect you like are just they're not up to that task right and any like mass any any action that would like legitimately resolve this would in some sense have to smash those institutions whatever they are they would have to break them in some way right and there is nobody in the leadership of like the democratic party who is ready for that task like nobody is willing to like break that the little thing that says you know the glass that says in case of fire break it you know break this and pull out whatever whatever it is right uh you know whether it's a like explicit sort of like confrontation with the court whether it's you know whether it's something else um like no, nobody at the top levels of national politics is ready to do that uh, and, uh, and that, that's just what you are, what we are. Right. Like, and, and so, yeah, in a sense, like people are saying like, okay, like, like whatever the, the tools aren't there, but in reality, it's just like the tools are there, but they come at a cost, uh, that, you know, the cost is like the, that you have to recognize that the current political system is like, it's dragging us all down with it. Right. And like, if, if that happens, like it, the, you know, you, you have to do something one way or the other and doing nothing is doing something also. Um, yeah. And there's nobody, nobody, uh, currently brave enough sort of to, to, to try to take an alternate route. In terms of like what could actually be done. I was influenced by the podcast episode that G here did with uh, Linda Hirschman about essentially like, a underground railroad but for abortion you know obviously in this case the premise is like the federal government supports abortion rights even in places where the states discourage it so you use federal power you know very different from the actual underground railroad to uh effectuate availing people of their rights you know that would involve a direct possibly violent confrontation between federal forces and state forces in states that prohibit abortion that's what you're saying it's like that's that that's what needs to be done and people in power absolutely are not willing to have politics at that level have actual violence in the streets and like it's under i mean as somebody i i saw malcolm harris tweeted the other day like you know all of those fantasies involve me dying you know <laughs> because i'm the one who's actually going to be there in exchange for somebody else creating the political spectacle that they want and it's like if, if you're malcolm harris or anybody who might partake in that kind of uh protest you know it's understandable you, you know that those people in washington do not have your back so like even if they were like okay sure let's have one protest in mississippi where we run a bus that's going to take people to new york to get abortions you know are you going to show up for that protest you know there's good reason not to because you know that the that politics are not going to be be there when you know you're the one who's actually going to pay the price for it yeah absolutely the, the Democrat sort of institutionalist approach to politics makes it very difficult to have sort of the fighting spirit necessary to or like the because to, to actually like reform even to reform the institutions in a dramatic way, which, you know, I think 
I mean, if I if I have to make a diagnosis of American politics is that, you know, at the very least, some kind of extreme institutional reform would be necessary to get the kind of politics that I want. So I, you know, but then, but then again, it's like, I do have a, a, a set of things that I want. And I think for Democrats, a lot of times, the set of things that they want is just sort of like business as usual through the normal institutions of government. Yeah, as and, for its own sake, like without right, any right. sense that that gets you anything. And the thing is, you know, uh, as as we've seen, I mean, there there was a sort of trope in the in the Syrian conflict about the moderate rebels, and you know, <laughs> the thing about the moderate rebels is that they're not really fighting for a dramatic cause. They don't have like the sort of animating force to their fighting that someone who's an extremist who really has like a vision of like something that they want outside of the normal course of business. Um, and for that reason, you know, the moderate rebels ended up being horrible, terrible, awful fighters. And for the most part, like, you know, the, the fighting forces that had like vigor in that conflict were like the, you know, um, the extreme religious uh, fighters who have, a, a you know, a very strong vision of a society, but also the extreme, uh, the, you know, the, the, the fighters on the left who were creating, an, a, you know, an autonomous region in northern Syria. Um, Which we just on, sold out to Turkey in order to get course. Sweden and Finland admitted to NATO. Well, you know, you know, that's just that's what we do. That's that's our business as usual, I guess, in the rest of the world. But I, I, I was just going to say, you know, like you don't necessarily have to be someone who thinks that, like, you know, society needs to be completely remade. And, you know, I don't know, the family abolished and all this kind of like extreme radical, you know, uh, left wing, whatever, to, to think that, like, this political arrangement that we have doesn't work and isn't fair, you know? And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you if that's not, if you don't have at least that, then what are you fighting for? You're fighting for maybe winning some marginal battles on the Supreme Court that's slightly more favorable to you. You're fighting for maybe being able to pass additional like uh, slight, you know, slightly more ambitious pieces of legislation past, uh, you know, what the, the current blockade of the Senate filibuster you're you're hoping that you win slightly more presidential elections where you don't uh, where the you know opposing party doesn't win the popular vote or whatever. Um, you know, one thing that I find I think Jerry and I have talked about this before, but but this is something that I find. You know how people who are like real sort of down the down the middle, like moderate, centrist, like institutionalists, they'll always say things like, "Well, you have a you have a vision of a different kind of society, but that's just not realistic." You know, and my question is, what does your vision entail? It entails, you know, basically getting to the point where each election and each political fight is a coin flip and then just winning a bunch of them in a row. You know, at a certain point, that's not realistic either. What's more, <laughs> what's more realistic in 100 years that uh, this country will have a different form of government or at least a, a radically modified version of our government? Or that in 100 years, you will have, you will have won like 75% of the, the presidential elections and that you'll have won, uh, you know, Nine, you know, 75% of the uh, electoral, uh, uh, like legislative victories that you want and that you'll have, you know, uh, uh, a more conducive makeup of the Supreme Court to enable all that. What's more likely? And that's, we're just talking 75% there. I mean, most of these sort of, you, you know, the Democrats need to do X, Y, and Z, and the Democrats need to pursue this legislative agenda. It's basically like, first, you got to win this coin flip, and then you got to win this coin flip, and then you got to win this coin flip, and you, you start getting out, you know, into... Uh, you know, 10 or 12 of those things. And I mean, you know, 
do a power of two that is a double digit number and just see how small that denominator is. It's, you know, this is this is what we uh, in the physics business, we call this a metastable equilibrium, right? It's like, like you can't just like you, you can't just imagine that, like, everything is just going to be the same all the time. And you're just going to trade like you could imagine a world like I don't think this is a good world, but you could imagine like a, a political setup. And in fact, like we had that right in kind of the sort of the, the again, the height of the liberal consensus. You did have obviously like different parties winning elections but you had kind of a rough let's say broad consensus on and and when i historians don't at me i realize that they you know things were fractious and they were always fractious but there was a basic like elite consensus you could say about the overall structure of government right when that elite consensus no longer exists then like the next time the other guys win the election like they could just put you in jail, right? I mean, like, they, they, and then democracy's over and then you don't have that anymore, right? So you can't just say, like, you can't count on uh, just trading, uh, you know, trading horses or trading places every couple of years and thinking like, oh, well, you know, time will, will solve this problem for me or whatever. It's just like, that's not, that's not going to happen, right? You live in a different world. And I guess just to put a bow on what I was saying, you know, it's okay to believe in institutions and the rule of law and stability in, in a political system. I don't think anyone wants to actually live through a time period in which, I don't know, there, there's like armed insurgencies. And I don't think anyone wants to be in an armed insurgency. I mean, God, you know, do you, do you want to die in the streets and then have them kill your entire family? That doesn't sound nice. You know, nobody wants that. That sounds awful. That's not something that anybody should say like, oh, this is my first option or whatever. Um, so I understand to some degree being a bit circumspect about, you know, the, the fact that you can't just, you know, that there are real consequences to burning everything down. But on the other hand, you know, if you don't actually have anything that you want, if you don't have a cohesive program or vision of the future or whatever you, whatever you want to call it, if you don't have things that you want to do, you don't have an idea of what the future looks like and the things that you want, the steps that you want to take to get there, then you're not going to have the, um, the impetus to, to to do anything now, certainly, you're not going to even have the impetus to like reform and save your own institutions that you hold so dear. And when, you know, if if that eventual conflagration comes, then where, you know, what, are you going to be out in the streets dying for radical centrism? You know, like that's not, that's, if, if you are, more power to you, but like you and what army buddy, you know, who's dying for, who's dying for, fighting for our beloved way of life that just keeps getting worse and worse a little bit every single year. You know, <laughs> it's, 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 it's like, you know, it's like, it's like the, uh, I don't know the, uh, what is it called? Like, like the, like the national, like the, like the deficit or something like that, or the national debt, like this is totally abstract concept that nobody will ever like, you know, people like write about it all the time because like, that's the nature of our like stupid politics, but it's like, nobody's, nobody's putting their life on the line for that. To get back to sort of the, the court and the, the fact that, as Marshall was saying, you, you know, there's always this sort of pretext, I guess, would be an ungenerous way of calling it, or just sort of like the, uh, the third, the body of knowledge that you point to when you're making a decision that says, this isn't just me imposing my will, this is actually me applying some principle, right? They always say that they're calling balls and strikes and all, all that kind of bullshit. I mean, it is bullshit. It's not, that's not, you know, they are imposing their will with a under, of course, certain constraints. So it's not like they can just sort of impose their, you, you know, um, just completely impose their will. Um, 
uh, anyways, what I was, what I was just going to say is, you know, things like the, like the national debt serve that same purpose in certain, you know, um, political, uh, discussions where it's like, oh, we can't have that because, and it's not because I don't want it. God knows I would love to have a better safety net, but you know, by, by, by golly, if the debt gets too big, well then what are our, our children are going to be paying for it? Or, you know, so it's, it's applying a, so, you know, some kind of supposedly neutral or abstract separate body of knowledge to a certain situation to say that there's actually like a constraint that comes. It's not me. I would love to, or at least, you know, it's not me just imposing my will. It's that there's this X, there's this objective reason that we can't do this. You know, it's very hard to get like to extract oneself from that kind of argument. If you don't actually want a particular outcome or like a particular, um, if there's nothing that you really want to do, if you just sort of want to work within the institutions, then like, how are you going to say like, you know, okay, well, screw the national debt. The national debt doesn't matter in this case, because the more important thing is the thing that I want to do. If you can't make that move, and I think this is something that we've seen with the Democrats over and over, they can't make that move because there isn't really something that they can point to that says, this is our, this is what we need. This is what we want. And we're going to hold true to that. Um, if you can't make that move, then you'll you'll be endlessly that 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 sort of sand in the eyes will always get you. There's there's you and you'll be left arguing in the you know in an unfavorable terrain of some kind of you know judicial argument or some kind of you know stupid argument about the debt or whatever whatever the case may be. Um, and, and that you know it's very you could see with on like the with Repu Republicans. When they when it's on an, something that they're like in lockstep on, they just like batter their way right through those arguments. They don't give a shit about the debt when it doesn't matter to them. And we, you know, people like to point this out like it's some kind of hypocrisy. Well, of course it's hypocrisy, but like that's that's a pretty feckless political argument, you know, um, because at the end of the day, people elect parties to do things, and if they do the thing that they're doing, you don't care if they're being hypocritical while they're doing it. Usually, so I would just say that like you, you know. Um, the problem with the Democrats, like institutional approach at the end of the day, like one of the big problems of it is that it doesn't really give them any sort of drive or impetus to actually like do anything because there isn't necessarily anything that they really want to do other than just sort of business as usual work through the institutions. Can I read you guys like a pretty good thread? Uh, it's like a few tweets, but uh, I thought it was like really good and kind of um, actually stitches together a lot of what we've been talking about. It's by this uh, guy uh, named Nico Bowie, who's a professor at Harvard Law. Um, and, you know, in passing, I should say that, you know, it, you can't look at the demise of Roe and kind of the victory of the conservative legal movement in general without, again, looking at the way that legal liberal academia has enabled it. Um, and particularly about, the, you know, when you think about some kind of big brains like Akhil Amar and folks like that who are like oh actually like we're all we're all originalists now right i mean taking this sort of like parlor trick as a serious well if you're talking about how liberal academia enabled it it's way more concrete than that it's that El elena kagan as dean of yale law appointed a bunch of right-wing people harvard law. oh harvard she's sorry excuse harvard. me I, i'm so sorry for mixing up yale and harvard um how dare you <laughs> uh, she appointed a bunch of right-wing people because she knew that she wanted them to say when she was appointed to the supreme court that they would be like oh yeah she's good she appointed a bunch of us so that's that yeah. <laughs> that, 
that is the fecklessness of the liberal legal movement in opposition to something that actually had an end goal and took steps that a uh, functional legal, legal movement or political movement altogether would take in order to get what they want. I just want, sorry, I just, I just want to add real quick too that like the, the, the incestuous Supreme Court commentariat of all these dick suckers who used to work on the court and now write about it in a professional capacity and talk about the mystique and prestige of the institution. All those, all those people are horrible and, uh, we condemn um, them. Our official yeah. position as a podcast is that they are we bad. condemn them. Exactly. I was going to say, of course, we condemn them in a professional capacity, you know, whether or not they're like, I don't, nice, I nice, don't, I call down the wrath of God on them. Well, I was going to say, you know, uh, if I'm ever called to comment for a, a soft peddling New York Times story on like whether, you know, uh, these people are nice at the country club or whatever, I'll make sure to, to say that they're, you know, just the absolute uh, cream of the crop when it comes to the. Uh, they know which fork to use. All right. Exactly. Jerry, tell us this. Threat threat. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Anyway. But um, the, the, the point that I was making was more uh, along the academic side of things where, you know, this. This was entertained as like a serious like academic theory and not as a like an obvious political power ploy. Um, and just like all those people are fooling themselves. Uh, you know, they're like all circle jerking instead of, uh, you know, using their brains to actually look at what's happening anyway. Um, so anyway, this this thread goes like this. Uh, it was posted a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's still quite relevant. Uh, so he starts. This past week has seen a repudiation of the court-based theory of change that has defined legal liberalism for several decades in the U.S., a theory that elite lawyers will always be able to use elite reasoning to persuade elite judges not to let things get out of hand. Our government is dominated by graduates of law schools where they learn how liberal victories since 1954 have been won not by organizing, movement building, or legislating, but by arguing so persuasively that no judge can resist bending the arc of history toward justice. This week reveals one obvious downside of legal liberalism. Judges can ignore it. It's terrific when the people in charge agree with you that everyone should have contraception, healthcare, or a livable environment, but what are you supposed to do when they don't? More importantly, legal liberalism has also displaced the U.S. left's infrastructure and vocabulary of popular power. For decades, liberals have con confidently responded to injustice with see you in court, but the same voices are famished for alternatives when courts are the problem. Rather than look for leadership from uh, dissents or capital poetry, we need to uh, we need to learn from people who have spent this, these same decades building power in spite of a hostile legal system. The recent victories of the labor movement, modest as they are, should be studied and replicated. To reverse this week's court decisions, we need national laws. To enact national laws, we need political power. To build political power, we need to collectively commit not just to the biannual ritual of voting, but also to the day-to-day -day grit of organizing the people around us. In contrast with legal liberalism, organizing is a theory of change that doesn't trust people atop hierarchies to share our values. Rather, we must build our relationships with one another into the disruptive leverage necessary to compel skeptics to follow our lead. The labor movement is currently perfecting the art of organizing, whether structure-based or momentum-driven. Its tactics aren't new, but modeled after histories of working women, people of color, and abolitionists who build political, political power with strikes, boycotts, and not just lawsuits. Libraries document specific strategies ordinary people have used to change. Anyway, now it's just uh, addenda. But I think I think cutting it off there, um, I think is, I think it like really kind of ties together all these different themes. I think that we've been hitting. Um, and it's kind of it's like kind of gratifying. I mean, to to see like at least some, one person at like Harvard Law kind of like be like, okay, <laughs> take you know taking this seriously. You know, wish it were more. But um, anyway, I still think we should just get rid of Harvard, Yale, 
Yeah, I mean, we should still get rid of it. Stanford. Like, it's, it's fine. Like, all, the good people will find their way to other good places uh, to do Just to take do the top 25. And... People's Law School, which will right. uh, amalgamate <laughs> all of the top law schools, cull 90% of the herd, and keep the good people. I was going to say, too, you know, in that, uh, you know, important context for the Roe versus Wade decision, of course, is that it was like in the milieu of like the Equal Rights Amendment um, campaign and, you know, sort of the, the, the women's movement of the 1970s, which was um, a lot m- more sort of retail ground based politics than, you know, sort of like the 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 current model, which is like we all live in our isolated family domiciles and like. You know, once in a while, when some outrage happens, we decide that, you know, we're going to pause our usual schedule of getting, uh, uh, you know, some kind of Grubhub slave to deliver us food on that particular night and take to the streets and some kind of flash mob says, oh, just do something. And then, you know, uh, and then as we've talked about before, like, it's kind of unclear what the mechanism of that connects the protest saying do something to the actual, like, like democratic party politics is um so uh i think it's important to to recognize that like you know the a lot of the um landmark civil rights legal battles took place in a a larger context of like social movements where real consequences were at stake and uh expecting that you know that getting the right people in the courts and that kind of stuff and and being able to sort of antiseptically doing the same you know, getting the same kind of results without that kind of turmoil is maybe not realistic, given the history of of how those victories were actually won. I had this thought, I'm going to drop this like kind of half-baked conjecture or theory or whatever. Again, historians, please do not at me. Uh, Your concerns have been noted ahead of time. I've, I've, I've like been working this model out in my head about like, the con like the constitutional like the constitutional order right so like it's one of these things that that sort of if anything in america like commands any level of political allegiance it's like this notion of the this constitutional order because like everybody's like very very attached to it right and i was thinking about like okay what would it take right what 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 is it what does it take for that order to sort of either be in genuine danger or for it to like break um and i kind of like put together i i I thought of like two and a half instances two two like direct instances and and then like one kind of like quasi instance where i thought that there was like you know insofar as you can call anything like kind of an inflection point like like points where that order like turned into something different from what it had been before. And so like, like I'm going to explain kind of like what, what I'm trying to say here. Uh, so the very, so obviously like you start with kind of whatever, I'm not counting the, the revolution itself. Obviously that's sort of kind of the origin story and, you know, and, and you have a couple of years that they put her along with, you know, the articles of the Confederation. Finally, like, okay, we wrote the constitution, uh, 1789, let's go. All right, cool. Things, you know, more or less move in, in, in the, in the, within the parameters, within the framework that like was set up until the civil war, right? Like the civil war is the first point of fracture, like genuine, like catastrophic fracture really. Right. Um, And following the civil war, you have, I mean, people, you know, whether, you know, 
people like Eric Foner or others, you know, really have called it kind of a, a second founding, right? You have uh, essentially um, a, a, an amended constitutional order that that is given, you know, that is given birth to by this, uh, by this, um, you know, conflagration. But the interesting thing to me about it is that, like, part of the problem there is that, you know, because the union never really, you know, formally does not acknowledge that there has ever been any secession, right? You can't acknowledge the secession was a real thing. Um, so they don't acknowledge that there was any kind of a breaking of this order, right? Everything is viewed as kind of like, in the moment, it's viewed as a continuity with like the things that preceded before and all the, you know, I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and the amendments are passed, you know, even though the uh, the Southern states, the states don't get to vote on them, uh, which is fine, by the way, that's how it should be. You know, but but the formalities, the procedural formalities are observed and the system like accumulates, you know, kind of a new order of, you know, the post the post Civil War amendments. But but it's an agglomeration. It's not a, it's not a different. It's not a thing that is different. Uh, it's different in its character, but it's not different kind of like from the history that preceded it. Right. So it, 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 it accumulates. It, it gets a new like addition in the form of the, uh, the post Civil War amendments. And then we you know, we we move along until we get to essentially the Great Depression. The Great Depression is like the second fracture, right? Uh, where it becomes clear that like the political order that uh, had pre preceded the depression is like not, it has it has no capacity to deal with like the fallout. So you need something, you need the modern administrative state. Uh, and to get the modern administrative state, you need a different judicial, you need a different legal order. You need a different, like essentially constitutional order. And so, you know, through the Roosevelt presidency, uh, you know, kind of like encompassing World War II, you get this tra transformation, right? You get the, the, you know, the expansion of the federal government, you get like these um, kind of all these new capabilities for what the, the, go the government can do. And it gets the kind of the, it gets the legal stamp, the imprimatur of the Supreme Court, you know, under some duress, uh, but nonetheless, it's there. Like, again, all the procedural formalities are sort of like nominally observed. And again, you have this thing that is now a different, different in its character, but it has accumulated like the, a, another additional like piece of uh, whatever cap capability, I guess you could call it. Right. Or like philosophical baggage, if you want to be less generous to it. Um, and so now we're sort of like, I, I have this like, idea i don't know if, if, how true this is but that we're, we're in like we are in kind of a slow like process where a third fracture is happening like we don't know it's it's impossible to know like there's not like going to be there might not be like one single day it's not going to be like oh you know they fired on fort sumter or like there's a black black tuesday now and, and everybody's out of a job there might not be like one day and that makes it hard to diagnose like in real time like what is happening but there's this like but my thesis i guess is that we are kind of like in the middle of this of like a third fracture of the like of the order right like something has there's like all these pieces are in tension with each other and like some of them have to give and there's you know nobody knows i think how that's going to play out but that's my schematic schematic theory so yes and i, I realize obviously it's uh it's a it's a high level overview and it's uh incomplete and there's a lot you could i think you could take issue with but those are the signposts that i'm planting along the way i think on the the on chapo they have this idea that like you know we're possibly entering a uh, a period of like um 
more like decentralized federalism basically that like you know under the ages of like uh, a strong national government outward facing but a weak national government inward facing the the basically there become like two separate kinds of systems there is you know the sort of the conservative republican system and then there's the centrist liberal democratic system and you know i think that that's it, it, it's it's foolish to try to predict the future of course but i i i don't i i think that's certainly a guess that there there's a lot of antecedents to to think that 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 could come to fruition i mean uh i think that you know there's a lot of antecedents also to suggest that basically you, you know the pendulum does kind of tend to swing you know back in the other direction a lot of times so it's really just hard to know like what to expect really um i i i think it's difficult to expect that there's going to be some kind of dramatic break just because well there's a lot of money riding on the system operating to you know to a certain degree with the same efficacy that it does now uh with regard to you know controlling the world order and the you know flow of capital and all that kind of stuff i mean that you know that stuff it would be pretty dramatic if something really gummed up the works with that, you know? Um, I mean, COVID did to some extent, but I mean, that wasn't, you know, that was not anybody's deliberate choice, obviously. Uh, and, you know, the response to it has been to try to sort of resuscitate the existing order with, I guess, you know, it remains to be seen if there's going to be a, a bigger shakeup from that, that, that sort of, we're talking about smaller supply lines and more localized economy and stuff like that. that that's a possible consequence of, you know, sort of the world trend right now. And I, I, it wouldn't surprise me, but then again, you know, it also wouldn't surprise me if this was just a bump in the road and that we kind of, you know, went even more down the road of that, that had been, that we've been going down before. So I, I don't know. I'm not, not none of this is very articulate. I don't think. I, I, think, that, I think that's correct though, because the, the thing that exists, that exists now that didn't exist then, and that is kind of holding everything together is, the prerogative of international capital, right? Like, there's there is a lot riding on this system, uh, in a way that wasn't the case uh, in 1860, and what and you know was sort of the case in uh, 1929, but the failure of that particular like ideology at that moment was so profound that they had to that they just they had no constituency to you know make themselves. Uh, to 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 exert their power, right? It was just like very obvious that something had to be done, and it was particularly like, you know, the, you, you know, because it came from the financial sector, it was so that's why it was so um, uh, that was so devastating to them, and and they just could they couldn't mobilize uh, against it, even if they potentially had the you know let's say the desire to do so, and they we know that they did. Um, but now it's kind of like, okay, the those those forces are way way stronger, right? Um, and it's like, you know, even if you could conceive of this kind of situation where I don't know, like Texas or in California, sort of like move in different directions, even while uh, while uh, remaining kind of nominally part of the union, it's like, well, you know. Are you go if you are an international like corporate entity, 
Like you got to want to do business in both Texas and California. And for that, you need some kind of like national like government that's going to keep these people from like <laughs> keep these people from completely like dissolving like the country. Right. And so, and and so, yeah, I, I agree that you can't can't predict the future. Nobody knows how this is going to, uh, how this is going, how this is going to end. But I do agree that like this sort of, uh, I, I I have a, uh, again, like a, this is my term for uh, for this, uh, you know, my theory of uh, cynical federalism is uh, what I what I'm an advocate for, which is that you know if you can get left wing results by uh, via the national government, you do that. If you can get them via state government, you do that. Like you do whatever it needs to be done. I, it really seems like that's coming, that that might actually come to pass. We'll see. We'll see how, uh, you know, sort of the nominally, you know, the, the liberal governments of, uh, you know, let's say California, New York, Illinois, whatever, how they react to all of this and what they actually end up doing. But but it could be it could be that that's the way things are things are moving. Under the current system, there's not as many opportunities for like individual actors to uh, you know, produce dramatic breaks in the way that maybe there, there have been under previous orders that, you know, everything is a little bit more bureaucratized and power is more decentralized. Um, and uh, a lot of the power now resides in um, money. That's really hard to understand. There are, I mean, there's obviously, there's other, there's other countries and there's, there's points in our system too, where, you know, somebody can, can, you know, push the button, whether it's the button or a different button (laughs) until something really breaks out and is different. My best guess is that the way things go is the title of our wonderful podcast. You know, they just get, they're the same, but just a little bit worse. (laughs) That's how the current arrangement is set up. That's the kind of outcome it's set up to produce. And until we see otherwise, it, I think it's 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 safe to expect that that's sort of the prevailing uh, conditions, at least for now. But then again, you know, like I said, can't predict the future. It's just so hard to know. Yeah, I, I mean, that, right. It's like you, you, you never, I think, very rarely do know whether or not you're living... Um, you know, your living history, let's say, <laughs> but it, but yet it continues to happen. By the way, uh, you know, while we were talking about the, this is something I just wanted to uh, tag back to real quick. We were talking about the burger court and I was like flipping through uh, Wikipedia and I was reminded like <clears throat> that, you know, in addition to uh, tossing out Roe v. Wade, uh, this current session also tossed out Levin v. Kurtzman, which People haven't really like talked about nearly as much for obvious reasons, but it's also kind of one of these, uh, you know, another burger court decision, a, a pretty a, a, a eight, eight to one, I think, you know, overwhel- I mean, overwhelmingly like decided again in, in favor of sort of the non-establishment. Lemon um, versus Kurtzman and being a school prayer case. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think maybe out of New Hampshire. Um, I can't remember. Yeah, it was, it was either, it was, I want to say it was Maine. Okay, somewhere up there. Um, no, but there was like, no, there, there was a different one, right? There's the, there's the religious funding uh, case from Maine. And then there was the other one with the guy, uh, the, the coach who was, uh, I forget where he was from, Nebraska, Oklahoma, like some, somewhere in the, like kind of the plains, I think, but don't take my word for that. 
Um, but yeah, like that's another one of these things that was that's, you know, uh, been kind of a staple of like, you know, I'm sure an infinite number of law students have, you know, learned the lemon test in their, you know, classes. And um, that's that's no longer that that doesn't exist anymore. Right. There's, a, you know, another one of these like old pillars of the the liberal consensus just gone. Get, re- get ready, get ready for that. <laughs> One thing I was going to point out is, you know, because Roe versus Wade has this sort of, it's sort of the Supreme Court case when it comes to the one that's always seems to be in the crosshairs. And, and obviously, you know, the, the conservatives have kind of, they're the dog that caught the mail truck on this one now. And so, you know, the question, I, I think it's an interesting question to think, what's the next mail truck, you know? Well, you got lots of them, right? <laughs> there's always another. There's always another war to fight, right? Like the conquest is. Uh... I, I think it's it's always kind of foolish to. You know, there's all these people on the internet who love to scream about, oh, the Democrats need to message this way, and they can't put all the emphasis on this because then people will blah 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 this and that, and it's like, on some level, I, I just think that that's. I mean, who knows the effect that that kind of stuff has? You don't know. And I think that's like the most charitable read you can put on it is just like, but, but, you know, I think that there is a, a, there has been a contingency. There's been a contingent of people who have said basically like, uh, well, don't put all, you know, it's important to recognize that like Roe versus Wade is not the only Supreme court case that's, that exists. And it's certainly a very important one, but it's maybe not even the most important one in terms of like the daily life of most people in this country that could become under attack given the current composition of the Supreme Court. And I think that's probably true. Uh, and I do think that there is a sort of rhetorical danger in basically saying that like, well, this one thing is like the bulwark that stands in for all these other things without ever talking about the other things. Um, and, you know, obviously just sort of through historical contingency and a lot of the processes that we've talked about have given Roe this central position in sort of Democratic Party talking points, but also like fundraising apparatus and stuff like that. So it, it, it and, and, you know, to some degree, rightfully so. Um, but uh, I, I did I did want to point out that, uh, you know, your bringing your bringing up of Lemon reminded me of, of the fact that, you know, obviously there's there's a, a potential that there's that this Supreme Court becomes like a new Lochner era of the court. And the Lochner era for listeners is just an era of the court in the sort of pre-New Deal in which um, the, the it was extremely pro-business, I think is the only thing you really need to know. Like the right to contract was sort of the, the central right that existed in the country, according to the court at that time. And that things, you know, like <laughs> whether... Children were, you know, could uh, were, um, you know, while, whether child labor were, was allowed or whether, uh, you know, uh, there there could be limits on working hours and things like that, um, all sort of came up against this right to contract and were said, oh, those things, you know, you actually can't have those things. Now, there's a very real chance that, like, you know, the 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 most dangerous thing that this court could do is to become a new sort of Lochner era court for our all the wonderful innovations and efficiency and productivity that have occurred since the Lochner era that could sort of basically drive uh, a lot of undesirable processes from the the standpoint of working people. Um, And I don't want to diminish that, but uh, I do think that, uh, uh, you know, if, if I had to read the tea leaves and sort of say, where, where is the, the energy and animus of the conservative legal movement now it's sort of training its beam uh, 
I would say it's the public schools and um, that basically any any case involving public schools that sets a more liberal precedent is uh, just watch out, I would just say, um, because it's 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 there's a lot of synergies there. You know, public schools have dark synergies. That's the kind that you were talking about before. You know, the public schools have a lot of unionized employees, obviously. Um, you know, you've seen a lot of the, the sort of the um, the more unhinged sort of uh, energy on the right is focused at, you know, public school sickos who are trying to tell your kids to do, you know, to have four genders or whatever, you know. Um, and, uh, and, you know, like public schools are sort of the central component of like public goods governance in this country to the extent that it exists. They are the sort of central public institution. Um, and, you know, one of the mechanisms that is more democratic in our country, uh, although, you know, major caveats there too, like basically the, the, the way that we have school districts in this country means there's vast disparities in funding. I don't need to, to go through that, but I mean, you know, in, in a, a truly democratic society, we would have, you know, much larger, much larger school administrative funding authorities, at least, so that, you know, the schools wouldn't be beholden to the tax bases of the people that live in them. And that, yeah, obviously that drives, I mean, here, here's another synergy that drives a lot of segregation in this country because, you know, where are the good schools? The white suburbs. Why are they there? Because those places are rich and have a huge tax base. Why do people move there? Rich people, because they want their kids to reproduce their social status. So, you know, it's like, uh, it, the, this is at the, you know, the schools are at the core of geography. They're at the core of economics. They're at the core of, you know, a hot, a hot button social issues. And they're at the, the core of uh, unionized labor. I mean, you know, this is, I think, I mean, this is not like a Nostradamus style prediction or whatever, because, the, you know, schools have been under attack, um, you know, for the last 40 years or whatever, but, um, if you're looking, if you're looking for like sort more sort of social kinds of cases, cases that aren't like you know about regulating businesses and antitrust and stuff like that, where you know there could be some real overruling of major precedents, I think schools, and you know I don't whether I, I mean I think that there's not been nearly as much sort of ideological energy on the right invested into the idea of like overruling Brown versus Board, which is obviously the central case when it comes to you know sort of social rights in schools. Um, there's a lot of sort of cases that follow Brown versus Board um, that you know many of the, many of which have already been you know kind of made into Swiss cheese or whatever uh, that involve you know desegregation, busing. Um, you know, it's much like the Voting Rights Act uh, in, in that in that sort of way. You know, I, in the in the same way that it's it's hard to imagine that the court is going to overrule Plessy versus Ferguson or something like that, uh, but they're still going to like, you know, take aim at the Voting Rights Act and did. Um, you know, I, I I I think it's it's pretty likely that that basically any case that that follows in the line of um, of Brown versus Board that that has anything to do about making the public schools a you know better, safer, fairer, more democratic place are probably going to be under attack. And um, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not one of those people who's like, and now we all need to be mad online because that's going to be you know the, the more we scream about this, the more somehow it's not going to happen because God knows if that has any effect other than raising your blood pressure. But I think that you know if we're if we're looking at an area where uh, there could be some major upheaval that maybe doesn't quite have the same um, 
social, you know, like news impact, but, but certainly I think we'll have, you know, an equally bad long-term um, e effect on just like life in the country. Uh, yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, like the, you know, there's a way more to say about this than like, than I think we're going to get to, but like the, obviously the, you know, the attack on public schools has been like a right-wing project pretty much uh, since forever. Um, and, you know, yeah, like the recent, the, the recent decisions are part of that. And, um, it's, it's definitely one of those things that's like super local too. Right. So it all kind of gets undone piecemeal. Um, and you, yeah, you gotta, you gotta look at, you gotta look at the state level efforts. You gotta look at the, um, you know, the national efforts, but the national stuff is kind of like almost like it's important, but it's not, I don't think it's the stuff that has the most impact, right? Because so much of this is actually tied up with uh, state state level funding. Um, and and one of the, you know, and, and the frustrating thing about this is that, you know, very much like with, uh, with abortion, where at least you have kind of this, again, ostensibly like liberal party, many of whose uh, sort of ideological, uh, I guess, um, I don't know, guiding lights are sort of will nominally say that they're like in favor of public education or whatever. But realistically, like, you know, all these people are constantly bitching about teachers unions and like, like, oh, like the, you know, like, how dare they protect these incompetent teachers? Like, why don't they like let more charter schools, uh, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. It's all this shit. So it's like, yeah, they've got some allies, like, again, amongst people who probably wouldn't join them on, like, the reproductive rights question, just because they're, like, not, they're they're generally just, like, pro-abortion, but will definitely, uh, might cross the line, probably will cross the line on school questions, like, on, on education, because they just, they hate unions, like, they, yeah. they just hate them, especially public sector unions, so, um, that's the one where you really have to like kind of watch for not just, uh, not just the, you, you have to watch out not just for the enemies, you know, but like the enemies that might be uh, among your own ranks. You know, democratic elites probably send their kids to like Georgetown day school or whatever, you know, they're not. So uh, the, a lot of people, a lot of these people pay lip service to, you know, the public education system. And I say, I'm a product entirely of the public education system. So, you know, um, that's uh that's where that's that's where I come from on that, and I mean, you know, but I, I so I, I think it's you don't want to trust people like elites on public education basically ever. I don't think because they don't really they don't really avail themselves of that system, and they they love to come up with nimble solutions to innovate in that arena, which you know come down to like cheap charter schools or like online schools or you know bullshit like that that doesn't work, and that's just going to you know really stunt people's development as people uh uh who 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 go through those those institutions or whatever um i will say that you know most people do have their kids in public schools and public schools i think they have this they're sort of like they're probably sort of like congress and that like it's overall rate you know approval rating is not very high but like people's ratings of their own schools is pretty high and i think that people can be tricked to some degree through this, you know, the, the, the teacher sickos are grooming your kids or they're teaching too much CRT about whatever, you know, um, or, or, you know, that they're all entitled union job people who, you know, are making 
exorbitant sums of money, which obviously is not true. Uh, the union part is tends to be true, but obviously, uh, you know, you, teachers don't really make that much money. But um, the uh, at the end of the day, I do think that there is maybe some some sort of strange allies that can be had in that too, because at the I don't most people I would guess don't want their local schools to get way worse or to go away, and you know, obviously a lot of Republicans live in places where their local schools probably even even if public education were under attack, you know, that's part of the sort of two Americas that we could see too, is where it's like, you know, charter schools for the wonderful, beautifully appointed public schools for me, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, like most people use public schools. Most people like public schools, at least the ones that they go to. Um, and most people want to see their local schools made better. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I think that it's, it's an up, it, it's, and school is something that you, you know, you send your kid to school every day. You, you, you know, every day that you're sending your kid to a public school is a day you're not paying, you know, $12,000 in tuition for them to go to a private school or whatever. So, uh, Boy, dear. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, that is in that way, it's more visceral to, to everyday life than, than, you know, the question of whether there's an abortion clinic in your town. Um, that may be something that, you know, you, you never envision yourself needing to avail yourself of, you know? Um, and so I think in that way, it, there, there's more of an uphill battle and there's more, there's probably more people who are willing to, on some level, defend like public education than you might think. But, um, but I, I still, you, you know, there's no, I don't think that's any reason for optimism necessarily. It's just, maybe it's a, a, a re I, I, I Sorry to ramble, but I read this amusing story about uh, a rural town. I think it was in Kansas, uh, obviously a pretty conservative place. Maybe it was even liberal Kansas, which is a very funny town name that I assume votes like 80% Republican. <laughs> but uh, uh, but the, it, was a, it was a town where um, this is a big problem in, in actually um, like rural middle America is that the dollar general specifically will come in. They'll build like a, it's sort of like a convenience store without a gas station, but it has like groceries and it drives grocery stores, like local grocery stores out of business, like small grocery stores. Um, and so a lot of these small towns, the only grocery store they have is like a place where you can buy like flaming hot Cheetos and diet Pepsi and nothing else. Um, and probably like shitty produce and whatever too. I, the only time I ever went into a Dollar General was when I really needed to go to the bathroom. And I will say that they had a pretty nice bathroom. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, this town was like, well, we kind of want to have a grocery store. And so like, you know, a town with Republican mayor, Republican city council, probably like 80% Republican voters just decided, well, we're going to, we're going to just buy the grocery store so it doesn't go out of business. And so they operate this grocery store, like the town owns and operates a grocery store. And, you know, it's obviously kind of ironic that you got, you have, you know, successful socialism happening, like right in the, the heart of red America or whatever. But I think, you know, that's, uh, that suggests something about things that impact people's local communities. And, uh, you know, schools is another example of a place where, um, you know, you have, it's an incredibly local issue about how good the schools are. And, uh, you know, people generally don't want the schools that they send their kids to to be shitty. And they generally don't want to pay a bunch of money to send their kids to a, a private school unless, you know, they're really rich or whatever. So, 
we're we're a couple of years away from that now, but there was this big wave of uh, pro you know teacher protests in a number of red states, including Arizona and I want to say Oklahoma, were two very prominent ones. And they you know they did they did manage to sort of like win some uh, some concessions for themselves and some you know some additional uh, you know pay raises and things like that. So you know there's a and, and it was and and you know my understanding and my recollection of it is that. They had they enjoyed a very high level of public support, uh, you know, when the when the teachers were actually on the picket lines. So there's some hope there. Uh, I think it, it shows that it would be a pretty bad strategic decision to basically say, oh, well, you know, schools are another one of these minoritarian things where we need to just go through the institutions and we don't have to have like a position on whether schools are good or not for for Democrats. I mean, you know, to some degree, I've kind of. I'm kind of post caring about like what the Democrats do. They're just going to do what they do at this point. I have no effect on it. You know, uh, like I can yell on the internet as much as I want. I can, I, I but you know, pe- these people who, what, <laughs> sorry to go on another tangent here, but a, the thing that really annoys me is people who treat their, their, their own vote as like a million dollar bill. You know, they're like, well, if you keep doing this, I'm not going to vote for you. It's like, well, okay, you are one person. I mean, I'm one person in a state of, you know, 10 plus million people. Okay, well, who cares if I don't vote? You know, like at the end of the day, nobody is responsive to my vote and my vote alone. And that's just, you know, that's just always uh, the only place, the only time I think when that that hasn't been true is like in the sort of city machine politics of like the 19th and early 20th century, where they would just, you know, they would just go around to everyone and and get their vote by hook or by crook, you know. Um, but but that's not how we operate now, and and obviously, um, you know that that system has all sorts of <laughs> issues with it as well. But, uh, you know, it's like, I, I don't have any impact on what the Democrats do. I, 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 I'm not within their system. I can't change anything about their system. I'm not, you know, uh, they don't represent my interests for the most part. They don't have a, the same vision as me for, you know, the future of the country. It's probably a little bit closer than the, the future that the Republicans want. Sure. But like, you know, it's still in my opinion, pretty bad. Um, and, you know, to paraphrase Donald Trump, I mean, I'll keep voting for that crap to some degree. Uh, but, you know, I, wh- who cares if I vote for Joe Biden or whatever? I, my, my vote is not determinative. And I think people, the people who act like it is determinative, who like for themselves are delusional. And the people who act like it's determinative for other people are usually like, they're like, I, they can sense sort of the zeitgeist getting away from them. You know, they can sense like, oh, well, this person it's not this person that I'm worried about necessarily. It's just this feeling that like, it's all slipping away from me because these assholes won't get in line or whatever. That was a long caveat of saying, I don't really have anything to say to the Democrats, but I do think it would be just a strategic blunder to basically say like, well, we don't really care what they teach in the schools. We, we acknowledge that some of this, you know, has gone too far and just kind of do their typical, like, you know, namby-pamby, like, you know, institutionalist centrist playbook that they always run out um you know if you want to if you want to like win on school stuff you just got to be like well we have a vision for the schools and here's what it is and you know if your kid i mean you know if you're if on this on the issue of like teaching the correct history of the united states or whatever it's like well do you want your kid to be equipped to live in the world or not like that's <laughs> that's that's a that's one way of of looking at it. if you just say like you know i i uh uh, I'm not going to stand in the way of people teaching like the real history because that's how you like live in a society. But I was just going to say like, yeah, just trying to split it down the middle and just sort of say, you know, just to say nothing on the issue and 
stake out no position on it. I mean, you know, people, there is a sentiment, I think, a popular sentiment that favors schools. Um, and there is a sort of brewing discontentment with schools as well. And like, you know, unless you're willing to sort of stake out a real position, you know, that that takes into consideration those two factors, you, you know, it'll just be slowly like lost from you, just like everything else. Yeah, the, I was going to um, follow up on the, the thing you said about the voting. Uh, this is one of those things where I, I just sort of, you know, even if you believe that sort of electoralism, let's say, is the correct strategy and that that, that, that can you know, we can debate whether or not that's true, but let's say let's let's accept it for the moment and uh, uh, take that as supposition. It does not make sense to me that you your like your conception of like electoralism just involves like yelling at people to vote harder, like and that is true regardless of whether or not you think they're doing the right thing or not doing the right thing, uh, and whether or not you would like them to vote harder or not, um, and. The manifestation of this, like, uh, is like people who are like, "Well, do you want like the other bad guys to get in?" It's like, okay, well, no, I don't. But here's the thing: you do not need to convince like me, because like I'm like a weird person who's like too online and also knows everything about all this shit. And like, you know, when it comes to like voting, like, like I'm gonna do whatever I'm like, I'm gonna do my part, whatever. You don't need to convince me is the thing, but you need to convince people who are like not part of that, who don't have that background, who are not like political obsessives, who do need to be incentivized. Like you can't just tell them like, well, those guys over there are terrible and they're going to be like, okay, well, why are they terrible? Well, they're just really awful. Like, okay, what does that mean? Right? Like you have to sell people something. Right. You got to motivate them somehow that that is like I, I don't even know what to say about that. That that to me is not even like a um, like a debate, really. It's like if you're if your strategy is just to like yell at individual people and tell them to vote like you're already losing, like you're already doing the wrong thing. It doesn't even matter what, whether you agree or like what, what your ultimate goal is. It doesn't matter if you think like this is the correct strat, like voting is like the thing that's going to save us, blah, 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 whatever. Like, if you think that, you should be crafting, like, a better, like, politics that's going to get more people out. Like, this stuff about, like, you just, like, oh, you individually, like, you need to, like, vote. Like, why are you tweeting at me? Why are you telling me to go vote? Like, who are you? What is, like, what is any individual vote, like, capable of? Like, nothing. Nothing, right? No single vote can change, like, like no single vote in an election like changes things materially you have to craft like a mass platform go spend your time doing that like don't you know yell yelling at like somebody for for saying mean things about like democrats on twitter is just like what like are like is this like like what are you accomplishing here like what do you think that this how do you think this moves the needle on anything yeah just completely baffling to me like you know part of it i guess is like some level some amount of catharsis but but a lot of people seem to think that this is like a really effective way of getting uh you know getting people to uh to vote in elections and uh i i don't think that that's true well i mean i i totally agree with you i think but i i think to be fair to those people like that is the logical conclusion of democratic party politics you know when you disaggregate people and you 
you know, basically say that politics is not mass politics, it's consumer politics. And you say that, like, you know, the obligation of our candidates is to not be the Republicans. And that's the only thing. Well, then what what is the if you're sort of a someone who's on team blue at that point, what you know, what is it? Where does that leave you? What does that leave you doing? It leaves you basically yelling at people to vote. What else can you do? Um, and I think that that more exposes I mean, it exposes the complete poverty of the program to begin with. But I, th I do think that like the people to, you know, to be fair to these people who are, I think, pretty, you know, like delusional uh, at best about like the like whether the things that they're doing are actually efficacious or not. Like it is kind of the only thing that you can do <laughs> under that system, you know, like. Uh, so anyway, I just just an observation that, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily like irrational behavior. I mean, it. I think the irrational behavior for me is attaching yourself to that political project to begin with. But once you've done, once you've already taken that first step, like the next step, what, you know, the only real next step that exists is like yelling at people to vote for the same bullshit, you know, like that because the, 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 the political, like the party at the center of it is already essentially like headed off all the other options. They don't want to do like a, a, a program that appeals to people. That's clear. They don't want to do mass politics. That's clear. They don't want to do, you know, they don't even want to do kind of like retail politics for the most part. That's pretty clear. Um, so then, what you know, what are you supposed to do? You know, you just, you just, I guess you have the main fact is that you're like, you know, not as 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 cruel and craven as the Republicans. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, it's like, it, to me, it's just all like exemplified by this. There, you know, they're like, okay, Roe is on the ballot. Okay, well, Roe is no longer on the ballot, but okay, abortion is on the ballot. Mm -hmm. Okay, what are you going to do? Like, give me a concrete plan. Okay, let's say you get, let's say that, you know, lightning strikes and you get the House and you get two more senators. I don't think you could reasonably ask for more, right? What are you going to do? Like, what's the plan here? What, what materially changes, right? Like, in that configuration, uh, and that's going to allow you to... Uh, do something that you aren't currently yeah. doing, yeah. right? It's like, and and nobody can commit to like anything. And the thing is like, the, the, the thing is you should have like, this is again, like one of these things is just baffling to me is that like, if you're in the business of politics, um, how do you not have like all these plans and contingencies drawn up? Like, why isn't there like some nerd like locked in a basement somewhere in DC just feverishly like churning out like every kind of possibility. Like God knows there are enough interns, uh, you know, in all the nonprofits or whatever. I, you know, I, I do not endorse uh, intern slave labor uh, just to be clear, but, but I think you could really uh, you know, there's enough people out there that you could put on this task to like put together. Okay. Like here is a plan. Like, where's the plan? Like, what, what is it? Nobody can tell. Nobody can tell me like it, it's like it. You, you can't just go out there in public and like just be like, OK, vote for us. OK, why? What are you going to do? Uh, we'll 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 fix things somehow. OK, how? Like, well, just 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 vote. And you'll find out. Like, come on, man. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what to say. It's like not it's just not, not how campaigns are not how campaigns are won. I don't think it's going to work out. Like that's that's my uh, you know official estimate I guess on this question.
I saw a funny tweet that was like it showed a, a picture of the and- Andromeda and Milky Way galaxies merging, and it looked you know it looked really bad, and you know it was like all the stuff was being thrown around, and then you know it was just a it was just a quote tweet of that, and it just said vote. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, on that one, I gotta say, <laughs> I gotta say that you know there there's there's some things that I think even voting uh, may not be able to accomplish, and. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe somebody. I'm okay. I'm okay with merging with the Andromeda Galaxy. I don't think it's gonna be. Yeah, it looked pretty violent, though. Actually. It looked like there may have. You know, um, if you were in the wrong place, you could be flung into the you know outer depths of non non galactic space, and that seems like a place you don't probably want to be. It's probably hard. Well, it's probably hard to have like actually yeah. existing socialism in the the depths of, like you know, when you're flung into the vacuum of space. Well, well, see, the thing is, like, you know, galaxies, right, obviously appear extremely dense because when you look at them, they have their there's pla- there are places where bari- there's baryonic right. matter, which means that that's there are places where uh, there's radiation, which is what you're really seeing. Right. Um, uh, but but if you kind of look at the mass distribution, uh, you know, the the mass like interstellar distances are, you know, very sparsely populated. Um, now, they're less they're more densely populated than like, you know, the voids, let's say, but, but it's really, you know, you're, you're very rare for there to be any sort of, any sort of like interaction between, um, uh, between stellar, between stellar populations to the, to the effect of like actually, um, affecting each other right yeah the, the worst thing i mean i guess probably the worst thing that can happen is that something somewhere uh undergoes like a grb or something like that and that wipes us out but them's the breaks yeah that's true yeah uh all right all right well do you want to call it i think so on this happy note right um well we can all just hope for the day uh, that we are flung into the void of space and We'll just have to see. It's impossible to predict the future, whether like our atmosphere stays intact through that process or. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, yeah, the, the atmosphere is. Uh, I'm trying to think, trying to think of like. What things I like, I'd be really worried about. Um, Obviously, you don't want to get parted from your star. That seems like a pretty big death sentence there. That'd be really yeah. bad. Yeah. If you get flung, if you get flung out of the uh, stellar orbit, uh, that is, that's. You better thing. find a new star real quick. Uh, there better be some DC interns in a basement game planning that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, they should, uh, you know, they should uh, uh, come up with a plan to like put engines on the. Exactly. You know, whatever, the South Pole uh, to drive us over to Alpha Centauri. Well, it would, it would solve the, the, well, it would, it would maybe introduce other climate change issues, but it would solve the current one. Uh, I suppose. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, why oh, you don't even right. need to block can, out the sun can... if there's no sun to begin with. You know what I'm saying? We, I got it. I got it. All right. Hear me out. We're going to solve climate change okay. by putting mm-hmm. a, um, the, the thrusters on like a thruster belt around sure. the earth. And it's always going to point sunward. Right? Yep. So it's, it's going to like ring the earth like at a, you know, at, at, the, at the meridian right. or not the meridian, the, the great circle, at, at, you know, and it's always going to point uh, to the sun. And then we're just going to fire up the jets and we are going to push ourselves away from the sun by enough 
to reduce mm-hmm. the irradiance of the sun right. on the planet and that's it we're gonna we're just gonna like if we if we go out another probably not even that far i mean maybe if probably you just probably need like a fraction i mean it's an inverse square yeah so you really only need like a fraction of the uh, of a you know of the current of a of an astronomical right we're only talking we're only talking a couple uh uh degrees anyway you know we're not we're not we're not really trying to like air condition the whole place you don't need need much you don't need much you just need to you need to drop the irradiance i I, you know i forget what the exact numbers are but you can sit down and calculate them it's it's the scaling that matters not the exact uh the exact figures but uh but yeah i think i think we could pull this one off that would be certainly a you know one step in a, a major step in geoengineering i think if we got there yeah yeah and then and then uh you know if you find that maybe you've uh you've gone too far you just you just rotate the jets right. to the other side and you kind of want to make sure that the jets are like outside of the atmosphere maybe just because you, that feels like that would be a lot of emissions right there yeah you're gonna to have to find a way to uh uh to to do that without necessarily polluting the atmosphere so i have i haven't come up with that with the exact input right well you mean i, I suppose you could just do it you could just take details. that into consideration when you're doing the you just push out a little bit extra because you need to take it into consideration oh yeah that's a good point that's a good point right you just uh yeah yeah i think doable i wonder how you would get the leverage you know like how would you actually attach how mean? would you actually attach the thrusters to the planet oh that's a good well you would build like a giant railroad all the way around the Got planet. It. Yeah, that might be tough. I was thinking. I was uh, thinking. You might. You might. You might. You might have to do something where you really only just build them in like a fixed location, and you can only fire them at a certain right. point. You know, in the day. That's so. true. We might have to end the war in Ukraine to do this, though. Seems like we would need Russia's uh, vast resources to complete this project. Yeah, that is true. Mm-hmm. That is true. Okay, so so th- I think but really I think killing two that, birds with uh, one stone, though, if if you manage to pull that off. I think Joe Biden should roll this out as part of his like, uh, you know, diplomatic, whatever diplomatic efforts uh, he may or may not be extending right. to, uh, to to end the conflict. I think he should uh, uh, drop this idea on them. Um, I think it would solve it. Would I think it would get I think it would, this would get like a lot of bipartisan support, really, because it's uh, it's a big like Bernie thing that explodes. Uh, so the uh, the fossil fuel people would love right. it. Uh, there's a lot of construction uh, job good jobs. trades would be all yep. for it lots of jobs um yeah um and uh yeah and world peace because everybody has to pitch in to make this that's happen, right so. it, yeah you've heard of the green new deal folks wait for the green apollo program that's right. <laughs> all right on that happy note uh oh, call it sounds good have a good night <laughs>